As we get started, I have a bit of a confession to make. Um, it's January, which means most of us have come away with the resolution to be in some way healthier than we were in November and December. And, and so with that, I'm starting to try to make some decisions, basic, simple dietary decisions to just be mildly healthier. And I, and I tell you, the two that are the hardest for me, uh, one is not drinking Coke. And the other is not eating chocolate. Now, just to be honest, is that um, chocolate is probably the greatest thing in God's common grace that he has given to humanity. Um, coffee's in the mix there, too, but, man, it's close. And so, here's the thing. I actually have come away with a logical case of why chocolate's good for you to eat, except that I know logistically and just honestly that that's not true. Um, so, so here are the two things that basically go into chocolate. You've got ground up cocoa, which I discovered when we were in the Caribbean is actually a fruit. You, you see, it grows in like pods on a tree like fruit. And you take it out and you, you tear the fruit up and you get these beans and you roast the fruit. Then you grind the fruit. And then if that weren't nutritious enough... You add all of the wonderful calcium and vitamin D that milk provides to the fruit. And you make this wonderful concoction that is both delicious and nutritious. Now we're laughing because we all know that, that chocolate does not land in the fruit section of the four food groups. Or if you're younger, the food guide pyramid. It's its own thing uh, categorized, I think, officially as junk food. Now, now here's the thing is that those of you who are chocolate lovers like me know that any dessert that doesn't have chocolate in it is truthfully just a waste. You might as well just, just go forward and get what you wanted anyway. Now, for, if you're a chocolate lover, I want you to think about something. I'm going to give you some descriptive words that we use to describe the taste of chocolate. And as you hear them, I want you to ask yourself, am I tasting chocolate right now? Okay, so as you hear these words, I want you to ask, does this taste like Chocolate, creamy, rich, sweet, delicious, bold. See, these are the words that if I go to the Food Network and their website, I find used most often to describe chocolate. Now, here's the problem for me is that when I hear those words, not for a second do I taste a mouthful of chocolate. I hear words that remind me I'd like to pick up a Snickers bar on the way home, but I don't taste anything. And, and what you see here is that there is a way of knowing what chocolate tastes like and a way of knowing what chocolate tastes like. One is a theoretical knowledge that you can pick up just reading about something. You can learn words that describe a thing, but that's a lot different than experiencing the thing. And what we're going to jump in today in 1 John is the apostle kind of describing these two ways of knowing. That there's a way to know God in a, in a somewhat scientific way. And there's a way to know him in a real and true way that transforms who you are. And John's going to give us kind of the clue to understand how we know if we truly know him. So with that out of the way, I want you to open your Bibles with me to chapter 2 of 1 John. As we read, I want you to listen for the feel and tone of what John is saying to this church. 
He says, my little children, I am writing you these things that you to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. So John jumps into the question, how do we know that we know? And how do we know that our knowledge is true knowledge and not theoretical knowledge of who Jesus is, but the kind of knowing that is relational? The difference between being able to spot someone out of a lineup as an individual or a specific person and knowing them at a heart level. The difference in knowing some historical figure and and knowing someone as you would your own father. How, How do we know that we know him? As we begin with this, I want you to sense the tone in which John is writing. He addresses the church as little children. In fact, seven times throughout this very short book, John's going to call them children. And he indicates a love and care for them. Most of the time, he's going to add the phrase little children in in front of that, indicating his care for them. Three other times, he refers to them as beloved. And so what John is writing to the church, he's writing out of a place of deep care and affection. And I think that's very important to remember as you read through this letter of 1 John. Because what John's going to do is begin to make people wrestle with their walk with the Lord and whether or not it's genuine. The thing I appreciate about that is that he's not doing that to be difficult. He's doing that because he's loving. As we talked about last week in Matthew 7, Jesus issues some significant warnings. He tells us in one statement... That the way that leads to destruction is wide, and many find it, but the way that leads to life is narrow, and few find it. So few find life. And then he goes on to say that there are many people who will come to him on the day of judgment and say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you. So you've got this difficult statement from the Savior where he says, okay, there's a lot of people who think they have found life, who haven't found it. And since John loves this church, he doesn't want that experience for them. He's going to write to them and say, okay, how do you know for sure that you know him? So he begins out of love. And one of the things just to note in life is that oftentimes the people who put difficult truth in front of you are the people who love you the most. The the people who really care for you are the people who will make you wrestle with truth that is hard to wrestle with who will confront you with truth that at times you'd rather not hear. We all know that, that moms who dearly love their children serve them things like asparagus and Brussels sprouts, not because they're fun to eat, but because they're good for you. Loving mothers don't serve up uh, jujubes and snow caps for dinner every night. And they may let you have it from time to time, but that's not the standard diet. Because we all know it'll rot your teeth and it's not good for you. So people who give you things that you need are not always the people giving you the things that you want to hear. And it's important to remember that, particularly with spiritual matters. 
That if someone's only serving us candy, they're not doing us a service. And so John, out of intense love and affection for this church, is going to lead them into wrestling with what it means to walk with Jesus. And I want you to see what he begins with. After talking to them, he's going to begin to describe for them what Jesus has done. But he starts with something that's incredibly important. He tells us that Jesus has made propitiation or payment for our sins, but not only our sins, the sins of the whole world. This is important that we understand what John is saying in that phrase. When John is saying that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world, many people have taken that to say, see, everyone always goes to heaven because Jesus has made payment for everyone's sin. So so we're all good. And it's what's called Christian universalism, which is funny because it's an oxymoron because it can't be universalism and Christian. They're, They're not the same. It's like military intelligence. It just doesn't work, right? So here's here's what he's saying. You see, the clear testimony of Scripture is that Jesus is the only means of salvation. You hear this in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. If you want to flip there, if not, it'll be on the screen for you. But the apostles are preaching. And they say there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. What we're saying is that faith in Jesus is the only means of your sins being forgiven and receiving the gift of eternal life. It is the only means of entering into a relationship with God the Father. So what is is John saying when he says that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world? He's not making a statement of universal salvation. He is making a statement about Jesus being the only Savior. You see, the world that they lived in was a world where many people worshipped many gods. And oftentimes, an individual city or region would have a god that they worshipped. And so if you were to go to Ephesus, they would worship Artemis. Sometimes they'd call her Diana, but she was kind of the goddess of their city. And if you were to go to Rome, they might worship Zeus or maybe the emperor as god. But, But each city, each region kind of had their own god, and it usually fit with the trade or the economics of that region. So if you were in a largely rural area where growing wheat is how we earn a living, you're going to find that they're going to worship some form of fertility god that they believe sends them rain because they have to have rain. If you were to go into the military, you're going to find that they're going to worship some god of war because that's what they do. And so based upon your profession or trade, where you lived, you might select your kind of local or regional god that you wanted to pay homage to. And what John is doing is addressing this strange idea of multiple regional gods and saying, no, you need to get this. There is one God and Savior. His name is Jesus. So he's not just our God that kind of makes us happy, and that's true for you, and so you enjoy it. He is the only God and Savior. The only name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So what we're going to jump into from John about what Jesus can do and is doing for those who seek him is something that only Jesus can do. Because he's the only God and Savior of the world. So John's going to tell us what the Savior has done in verse 2. He's going to describe his work for us in the past, what he has done for us, and what he continues to do for us. Tells us in verse 2 that he is the propitiation for our sins. We've used this word several times in the last few months. And it's a biblical term that describes wrath being satisfied or anger being spent. And so the description is that that God has looked upon sinful humanity and rightly 
judged them as deserving of his anger. Because they've sinned against him that all of us on a cosmic level have committed treason and deserve infinite judgment because of our sin. No sin is so small that it doesn't deserve God's judgment because in the end, it's walking away from God. It's turning from the one who is deserving of all honor and adoration and praise and instead of giving that to him, dishonoring, disobeying, and disbelieving him. And so what Jesus has done for us, taking our place on the cross, is made payment that is satisfactory for our sin. The death that we deserve, the punishment that was rightly ours, was put upon him as he was nailed to the cross and brutally beaten and the burden of the sins of all of humanity placed upon him. That's what Jesus did for us. And God looked upon that act and declared it acceptable means of payment. It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange, where where Jesus took upon himself our sin and the penalty for it and credited to our account his perfect sinless righteousness. So a transaction took place. And Jesus made payment for our sin, and that is something he's done for us, this great exchange. And so he's going to begin with this statement that this is what Jesus has done for you. And then he's also going to describe two things that are very important that Jesus is doing for us. You see, John tells us that he writes this letter to the church that they may not sin. And I've always kind of wrestled with that phrase, that they may not sin. Because the reality is, we don't go days at all without sinning. In the Old Testament, they had this interesting system that if you committed a certain sin, there was a prescribed means of payment for it. You could go to the temple, and if it was something that wasn't all that dangerous to the community, you could make a smaller sacrifice, or you might burn a bull or ram. But there's a system. And one of the things that I've just kind of learned about myself as I've walked with the Lord for for a while is the recognition that, that I don't think I'd ever get more than like two blocks from the temple before I had committed some sin again and needed to do a U-turn and, and go back. And so this idea that, that, that John introduces, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin, uh, kind of throws me off because if there's one thing I'm certain of, it's that I'm absolutely sinful. And what John is doing here is he's introducing to our minds this amazing thing that the Spirit of God has done for and in us. That because of the Holy Spirit's presence with us, God has given us what we need to walk in victory over temptation. That doesn't mean that we're ever going to be perfect. It does mean that we have opportunity to walk in victory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, many of you have committed this to memory. It says, no temptation has overtaken you, yet that is common to man. But God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So think through that. He says there's not a single temptation that you face that isn't common. And and that's encouraging that we're all wrestling with the same junk. So so everybody's walking with the same sin nature and the same temptations. You're you're not special or twisted or, or strange. You you all share in the sin nature. See, but God hasn't walked away from you to just kind of fight it on your own. He sent the Spirit of God to you to strengthen and empower you, to illuminate the, the truth to you that you might know sin when you see it. And that at each given moment when tempted, that God has made available to you a means of escape. 
And so what we understand from this is while none of us will ever walk in, in sinless perfection, at each moment that we're tempted, God has provided a means of escape for us. God's done that. It's a gift of God through the Holy Spirit that Jesus has sent to us to serve us and minister to us. So one of the things that Jesus is doing for us presently is working through the Spirit of God and orchestrating things so that we have an opportunity to walk in victory over sin. And that is an exciting prospect. Because the description of us prior to Christ is that, is that we are walking in the darkness of our sinful hearts. And now that we walk in the light, the Spirit of God is present and gives us the opportunity to continue to move towards Him. To reject sin and embrace Christ. So He's... He sent His Spirit to empower and guide us. The second thing that Jesus continues to do for us is He continues to advocate for us. John tells us, I've written this to you so that you may not sin, but if you do, you have an advocate before the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. So I I love that that, that John's telling us, okay, you have the opportunity to walk in victory, but practically speaking, we know that you're not going to do that every time. And so, so Jesus stands before the throne of the Father And he's an advocate. He's a helper to you. The Greek word is parakaleto, which he uses also to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit as a comforter and friend. So we have the Spirit of God here as a comforter and a helper. We have Christ before the throne in heaven as a helper and comforter. And so he's present and he advocates before us so that when our sin is there and the accuser looks to the Father and says, you see what he's done Jesus says, my blood is paid for that. That one's mine. And as this courtroom plays out, where the accuser makes accusation against us, Jesus is there as our advocate before God. So Jesus has saved us. He has made payment for our sin. He is walking with us and sending the Spirit that He might guide us. He's advocating us before the Father for us. So, so we begin with the work of Jesus, and then we start to get into what it means to know Him. So this is what Jesus has done for you. It's important at this point that we begin asking the right question, because if we ask the wrong question, we will almost always get the wrong answer. If we're asking the wrong questions of the text, we're going to go away with the wrong answers. And so it's important to ask the right question of this passage this morning. You see, the question is not... In John chapter 2, what must I do to be saved? That's not the question that we're asking and answering. If you read John's writings, you read the rest of the Bible, you're going to find this common, consistent answer that salvation is found through God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ alone. That simply by trusting in Him, that He died for our sins, that He rose again, that we have been Forgiven of all of our sins. And that's sufficient. That faith, that trusting Jesus, is it. In John 17, John's going to say, this is eternal life, that you know the Father and Christ Jesus whom He sent. So it's really about knowing Him through faith. So we're not asking and answering the questions, what must you do to be saved? What John is asking today is, do you know Him? Because knowing Jesus is the only means of eternal life. Do you know Him? And how would you know? And so what does he tell us? Let's look in chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we're asking and answering the question, how do we know that we have truly trusted him? How do we know that that our faith is genuine and real? Because it's only faith that saves, but there's a kind of assumed faith that isn't what God is talking about when he says, believe in him and you will have eternal life. There's a way to know and not know. You see, I would bet that if we were just to kind of go take a poll in our country, we would find some interesting results. One of the things the Pew Research Forum did this past year at Christmas is they, they hit the streets, they did their, their phone uh, calling, and they, they polled over 1,500 people, and they're asking questions about Christmas. They're asking questions like, uh, was Jesus born of a virgin? Was he born in a manger? Did an angel proclaim his birth? These three kind of central questions of the Christmas story. And it's interesting to find that about 80%, just under 80% of Americans affirmed all three of those things. And, and so you kind of get this sense that you know, like, like 80% of Americans are Christians. But then you look at our, our country and it, the, the math doesn't work, right? Because the trajectory of our, of our country doesn't line up with, with 80% of the people walking with Jesus. So how does this work? Well, what, what we run into is you start really digging into this data. Barna Group and some other folks have done that. Is that there are a number of people, a significant number, who would affirm some historical details about the life of Jesus as being accurate, who do not believe he's the son of God. They're not Christians. They might be uh, well, relatively well-studied historians, but they're not Christians. There's a way to know without knowing. And so John gives a very simple answer to this question. The answer is simple. It's just difficult to wrestle with. He says, you know that you know him if you obey his commandments. That's how you know. You know that you know him if you live the way he has commanded you to live. And he comes back and says, this is how you know you remain in him if you live the way that he lived. And and, and I love this beautiful thing that you just kind of see implicitly here about Jesus is the, the way that Jesus has commanded us to live is the way that Jesus lived. There's perfect continuity in his commands in his life, which he's the only person on the face of the earth we could ever say that about. You see, there's a lot of times, honestly, for us, that it's a do as I say, not as I do thing. But with Jesus, there's perfect continuity between the way that he commanded us to live and what he taught us and the way that he lived. Jesus is perfect. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous. It says, you know that you know him if you obey his commands, if you walk with him. And he uses this phrase, abide, which, which kind of points us back to some of John's previous writings in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. I'd encourage you to turn there. I'm going to quickly walk you through something. Because John 15 gives us a kind of bullet point of the kinds of things that, that, that God is looking for. That, that describes someone who is faithfully following Jesus. And this profile of a disciple that he gives us, of someone who is abiding in Christ. And I want to just walk you through them quickly. 
that someone who's walking with Jesus abides in him. They remain connected to him. You'll see that in John 15, 7. And ultimately what he means is that someone who's a true disciple of Jesus is staying connected to him. We stay connected to Christ through his word and through his people and through his spirit in prayer. That those who follow Jesus remain in him. They stay connected to Christ. Additionally, he's going to reinforce what we just heard. And in John 15, 9 through 10, he's going to say they're obedient to his commands. So more than just kind of being relatively good people, there's a sense of obedience. And, and the reason that's important is because obedience indicates that we ascribe authority and honor to someone. If we say that someone is our Lord and Savior, then that's indicated that we demonstrate that in obedience to them. So he's going to tell us that obedience is a significant marker. Additionally to that, he's going to say, you bear fruit. You see that in John 15, 8 as well as 16, Jesus uses that analogy of vine and branches and say, if you're connected to me, you'll bear fruit. In fact, he's going to say, apart from me, you can do nothing, but if you abide in me, he it is that bears much fruit. So what does a disciple look like? He's going to tell us that they live to glorify God in John 15, 8, that life is an act of worship for them, not an event that occurs weekly. In John 15, 11, he'll tell us that disciples are joyful, that they have the experience of the fullness of joy Walking with Jesus. Our obedience isn't driven by fear, but love because we know him. And lastly, he'll tell us in John 15, 12, that disciples love like Jesus. They love. Those are the attributes of someone who follows Jesus. So I want to step away from that for a moment because it is it's easy to get off base here. So I want to go back to this statement. If we ask the wrong question, we'll always come up with the wrong answer. If we're going to 1 John 2 and we're going to ask the question, what must I do to receive eternal life? What we're going to walk away with is thinking, I've got to be good enough. If I'm really good and if I follow all the rules and obey all the commands and I don't sin, then I'm in good shape and I'll get to heaven. But that's not the question we're answering. The question we're answering is, how do you know that you know him? And the assumption is that Jesus has done all that is necessary for us to receive eternal life. He has made payment for our sin. We receive it by God's grace through faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. And what John is asking, is there evidence that your faith is genuine? And the reason he's asking that question is because they've got this church here that was, things were great. And then they started to fall apart and they broke into these groups with strange teachings and weird ideas. And, and John's trying to bring these few that have held to the gospel teaching back together and encourage them. And to ask them the question. And to give them certainty and assurance of their salvation. And this is important. Because there are two issues in theology that we're starting to deal with here. And we've got to understand what they are and how they are different. One is what theologians would call eternal security. The idea that, that once we have come to faith in Jesus and our sins have been wiped away, it is God who holds us in His hand. And since He has saved us and not ourselves, there's nothing we can do to lose that. The Apostle Peter would tell us that we're being guarded by God through faith. So it's God that has held us in His hand, who continues to supply the faith that we need. It's all God's work, and we are saved because of His grace. We remain saved because of His grace. And once we are His, we are His. 
cannot lose a gift that we didn't earn. It was freely given and received. That's what's eternal security. That those who are Jesus's, none can be taken from his hand. Now, there's a different issue that is what we're wrestling with here, which is called the assurance of salvation. So one is that is salvation secure for all who have received it by faith? The biblical answer is absolutely yes. The other is, how do I know for sure that I have been saved? How do I know? If I'm wrestling with doubt, where would I go to try to answer that question? And John's answer to that is not to say, go back and ask yourself, did I pray a prayer? That's never prescribed as the method of receiving salvation in the Bible. Is it good to pray? Absolutely. Is it good to tell Jesus, thank you for saving you? Yes. Does the Bible prescribe the sinner's prayer? No. Because of that, that's not the thing that we point to. Driving down the street in Tomball a few weeks ago, one of our uh, fellow churches had a sign up that said, the assurance of salvation is found in baptism. Wrong answer. The assurance of salvation is not found in a physical act that a man performed while wearing a robe. That's nothing cosmically. It's nothing theologically. So where's the assurance found? Assurance is me knowing that I belong to him. Well, John's going to answer that question and say, do you obey him? Do you follow his commands? Do you walk with him? It's important we keep those issues distinct. Otherwise, we'll begin to think that somehow through good behavior, we earn our way into heaven because that's the opposite of the gospel. We receive a gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus. That gift is transformative because we're part of a new family. And so the question John's asking is, do you live differently? Do you have a heart that desires to walk with him? Because here's what's happened relationally between us and God the Father. We were rebels in opposition and enmity towards him. Because of his grace to us, we have been forgiven and adopted into his family. So before, we looked at him as a king who was holding out on us. And now, we look to him as a loving father who has given everything to have us. And that disposition transforms the way we look at him and his commands. Before we know him, we see the commands of God as ultimately trying to rob us of our pleasure and enjoyment. And once we know him as a loving father, we see his commands as intended to protect us and give us the fullness of joy. You, you see this rampant in our culture. Uh, when, when I was younger and, and Friends was on TV, we'd watch it. And it was probably, I don't know, the most entertaining thing on television, at least if you didn't have cable. And so we'd watch Friends. And here's the depiction of life in Friends is that you have all these people who are romantically and physically intimate with one another, and when that stops, they're still buddies and no one's weirded out by it. Isn't that ridiculous? I mean, seriously. It's absolutely ridiculous to think that one guy would be intimate with the girl, and then later his best friend marry her, and that's not weird to anyone? See, the culture wants to send us this message that, that hey, it's just nothing. Don't worry about it. And, and yet God says, no, there's emotional baggage if you step out of the bounds of waiting for intimacy until marriage. And you're going to carry that with you. Because I love you, I'm going to tell you, don't do that. I'm not trying to rob you of joy. I'm trying to make your joy complete at the appropriate time in the appropriate way without guilt. So he's saying, okay, you can walk in the world's way and they're going to tell you this is how things work. And and, and if we don't know God as a father, we're going to look at those rules as oppressive. But when we know him as father, 
all of a sudden we see his desire to protect and guard us. So we're more likely, more inclined to be obedient to his commands, not because they've changed, but because our perspective on who he is and what his desire for us is. That's when we begin to walk in obedience. We begin to walk in obedience more and more as our heart turns to God and we see him and receive him as a loving father because he has loved us and given his son to adopt us. So we walk with him in obedience because of love. Now, this is important stuff. Because God has saved us by his grace so that we might be fruitful for him. He set us apart as his people for his purpose. And there is a distinct possibility for those of us who study our Bibles, who go to church, that our knowledge of God, our knowing of him will result in nothing. And I want you to, to, to walk with me in the letter of Second Peter. So you just turn one page uh, to your left. And I want you to see in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5, what he tells us. He says, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I want to raise to you is that both John and Peter here in the course of just a couple pages in our Bibles have brought the issue to the table that it is very possible for us to know God but not really know him. To know him in a way that isn't fruitful or helpful. To know him in a scientific way, but not a relational way. To know him in our heads, but not our hearts. And so, we ask ourselves, how how do I know that it's sunk in? And, and, And so, the answer is simple, but its application is difficult. The answer is simple. You walk in the way that he's commanded and demonstrated. And then you begin to ask, do I do that? And this is where I feel like Peter really helps us out because he says, if these attributes are yours and increasing, in increasing measure, it's evidence that you're walking with. So it isn't an issue of perfection. We'll never have that, right? John's already told us, and you're, you're going to sin, and when you do, you have an advocate. So it's not an issue of perfection. It's an issue of movement, of progress and walking with him over a lifetime. So that as we struggle with sin by the Spirit of God working with us, the battle lines change. It's the same root thing, but but we're moving forward with Him. Slowly sometimes, quicker at others, but we're walking with Him. That's how John answers the question. We're saved by faith alone and Christ alone. Because of the unearned love of God towards us. But how do we know that we've really believed? How do we know that our faith is genuine? And John's going to say, is it changing you? Is it changing you? You see, we believe that, that, that the Bible plainly teaches that all who have trusted in Jesus are held secure until the day of salvation. Their salvation cannot be lost because it wasn't earned. It was a gift. And God doesn't take gifts back. The question that that, that John wants the church to sometimes wrestle with because of his love for them is, do you really know him? Because he sensed what I think 
most of us sense when we see the numbers in America. That allegedly 80% of the, of the population is Christian, but our lives don't look like it. Certainly the direction of our country doesn't reflect that. But do we know him? One of the beautiful things that, that God has done for us is in the midst of this life of wrestling... And a life of struggle with our sin. And I don't think we can pretend that that's not the case. That this is a life of struggle. Fighting sin by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Is to remember what Jesus has done for us. To remember that, that He has died to, to cleanse us from that sin. That He has sent His Spirit to us to give us victory over it that progressively as he works in us we would begin to walk in victory and that he's coming again for us and that he will set us free from sin its presence and its power and so knowing that we walk in that struggle and we wrestle with 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 what it means to walk with him and we wrestle with our sin and we wrestle with a sense of certainty that that we have really believed him he places this wonderful gift in front of us. This table. Where, where we get to remember that salvation came not because we were good, but, but it came to us while we were sinners because God is loving. And God isn't waiting for us to earn His affection. He's given it freely and He's just asking us to respond to it. To trust Him. And then when we do, He's going to start changing us. And then when we struggle and we forget, that we come back and we're reminded again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says, I'm giving to you what I received. That on the light night the Lord was betrayed, He took bread and broke it. And blessed it, saying, This bread is my body which is broken for you. And then after supper, in the same manner, He took the cup and He blessed it. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And that he pointed forward at that night to the moment that he would be nailed to the cross and he would die, that, that, that his body in the same way that this bread was pierced and broken, would be pierced and broken for our sin as he endured the penalty for us. And that, that in the same way as he poured that cup of wine, that his blood would be poured out to wash us clean. This is what he did for us. And he tells us that, that we should remember him. And that each time we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That he's coming back. And that the victory over sin will be complete and final at that moment. And so today we walk in the struggle, trusting what He's done for us, clinging to what He will do when He returns. And we're encouraged. If you are here today and you're a believer, regardless of church membership, we invite you to join us in taking of the Lord's table. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, one, we, we would, before anything we would say, let today be the day of salvation. What, what we have experienced in Christ, from knowing Him, this eternal life, is available to all who would turn to Him and believe that He's the only Son of God who died for their sin and rose again. And it really is that simple. But if you're not in that position and don't desire to be, then, then we would simply ask you out of respect to, to let it pass.
I want to ask the gentleman that will be helping with the elements to come forward. As these men come forward, we want to just encourage you that we're less concerned about the process of how things operate than the heart. So you're going to receive the bread and the cup. We're going to ask you to hold them and to pray. To seek the Lord and when you're ready, to partake. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for what your son Jesus did for us. That he willfully went to a horrific death on the cross. That not only the the, the physical agony of the cross was inflicted on him, but spiritually that he carried the weight of the burden for our sin. We thank you that in the midst of our rebellion, you've made a way for us to know you and walk with you. Father, I pray that this time today our hearts would be laid bare before you to seek you. That your spirit would work in us and strengthen and encourage us. That we would walk out of here knowing that our eternity is secure in Christ and what he has done for us. We thank you for the ways he continues to bless us as our advocate and sending the spirit as our guide. We thank you that he'll come again for us. And that this life of struggle with sin will be replaced with a life of joy at your right hand. In Jesus' name, amen.